Hey, it's your host, Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to collective healing, ecological regeneration, and true abundance and wellness for all. As a community-powered show made possible by listeners like you, we do need your direct support to be able to continue the show and keep exploring a lot of perspectives and topics often sidelined by mainstream media. So if you value these conversations that we gift to the public, you can reciprocate support for us starting from a gift of $2 at greendreamer.com support. And if you want the references and takeaways from each episode sent to you, you can sign up to our free weekly newsletter at greendreamer.com. For now, on to today's episode, where we're speaking with Conda Mason. You know, there's all kinds of capital, right? There's financial capital. We did not have, as a, I did not have a lot of financial capital growing up, but our currency absolutely was, was love. And that currency is way more powerful than any piece of paper that we agree on that has some kind of meaning to it. Conda is a social entrepreneur, earth and social justice activist, spiritual teacher, the co-founder of Impact Hub Oakland, and the president of Jubilee Justice, a nonprofit working to bring economic equity to BIPOC farmers and ecological sustainability by introducing an innovative way of growing rice while convening deeply transformational journeys, exploring the intersection of land, race, money, and spirit. We begin here as she offers as a glimpse into her formative journey that led her to this multifaceted sense of purpose. So my background is I'm from Southern California, raised in a very loving family. And I think that I have to say that everything begins with my family of origin. And I was raised by a mother who also very much encouraged our participation in life in ways that supported people who had harder times than we had and and to be active and engaged. And so I was. And she was a big influence in my life, as well as my older brother, who was seven years my senior and was very politically active and then became very spiritually active. And he was the person who really taught me how to think and critical thinking and so many things. And he was at UC Berkeley and I followed in his footsteps and went to Cal Berkeley as an undergrad. And so those are kind of, I say, that's where I got started. I got started my whole life where I was always working towards the bigger community, the broader community. And it was always about community and my family and, and helping others. And so that's where it all began. And since I was a child, I can't remember anything other than that, really. And so when I think of a piv- the pivotal moment, land, race, money, spirit, that's interesting. I remember when I coined it, I was on a train coming back from Sacramento, California, on my way back home where I was living in Oakland. And I just was looking out the window in the Sacramento Valley. And I remember thinking that that's what's important, the beautiful land out there. And, and I kept thinking the term land, race, money, and spirit just came to me in that moment on the train. <laughs> and it resonated and it, and it stuck. And it was like, yeah, that's exactly the intersection that I'm about right now at this point in my life. 
And to preface the rest of our discussion, I often find it critical to explore some of the historical context that set the stage for where we are today, where, as you noted, there's a leak of 30,000 acres a year that's being lost by Black farmers. So how do you situate this present reality in the rich history of Black farmers and what is really happening here? Yeah, we say loss, but actually they've been confiscated Mm. through collusion between the U.S. government, the USDA, private business, individuals, and primarily the system of white supremacy that actually, I really understand the system of white supremacy, a basic tenet underneath it is that Black people are not supposed to own land or any resources that allow us to live on this planet in a way that is healthy and whole. And the philosophy, the underlying premise is, and I see it show up in many ways, is that when we have land, which they feel we have no right to, then the collusion begins to figure out legal ways and illegal ways to take the land. Legal ways in that by stating, by creating laws that make that so that push us out of neighborhoods with redlining did that completely the heirs property um, laws that allows anybody to come in and and knowing the the impact that that would have on black families and that, you know, someone could come in and take the land just from a, a minor holding a minor piece of the land, someone from outside the family. And so it's been legally sanctioned as has always been with the institution of slavery that has been legally sanctioned. And then there's always the abolitionist as well. You know, there's always the abolitionists, and there still are today, who are recognizing and calling it what it is and, and trying to make a difference. But what is happening is that there are so many ways that Black land is being taken. An example is most, almost all farmers in the United States, they get an initial loan to plant from the USDA. And everybody does it. You say what you need, you get your loan and you plant and you harvest and you pay that loan back and you get another one and it's a cycle. And so what happened with black farmers is that one, oftentimes they're, first of all, not recognized as of, of getting loans at all to help them. So that's one thing is saying that your paperwork is wrong or that there's always something wrong. There's always a higher bar to cross than it is for their white co- counterparts. But then when they, if they should get a loan, it is often given late after planting time. So it's at the, at the curb of, at the edge of planting time. And so their white co- counterparts may have their crop in the ground and the black farmer is just getting theirs. And so now they're playing catch up and they get out of season. They get in this loop and then they harvest later, they plant later, they harvest later, they plant. And that continues until they fall off the wagon and they don't get what they are at, what they ask for. They don't get the amount and they get it too late. And then the loans are collateralized by with their farms. Their farms are are, be, are collateral, and so it's a it's a system. You give it to you give them little, you give them too little, you give it too late, you watch them default, and you take the land. It's a very mm-hmm. simple system, and it happens over and over and over again to black farmers. Yeah, sometimes people will ask, like, you know, how can a system be racist? And everything yeah. that you just spoke <laughs> to kind of explains that. How can a system be racist? A system, the system 
It is when we, it's so interesting. I think when people think of racism, they think of individuals and like, you know, whether someone is a racist or someone is not a racist. And that is the least of our worries, honestly. It's the system that was built on the backs of, and and the, the ideology of our entire governmental system is based in racism, it's based in white supremacy. And with that, I mean that there's not an institution, whether it's the medical institution, the educational institution, the carceral institution, you name it, every institution in America has a system whereby as a black person or a brown person, a person of color, access to that system is more difficult or it's easier if it's, of course, the penitentiary system. And that it's just built that way so that white access to all the good things on the planet, whether it's green spaces, whether it's loans, whether it's homes, whether it's a good education, whether it's um, a supermarket with healthy food, you name it, white access is there for all the good stuff. And it's systemic in nature. It is not not about, and, and yes, on top of that, there are racist people, no doubt. But the system is what is our problem that denies us and that keeps black and brown people out of a life that is of well-being, I would say. Mm. And so it is absolutely, it's more of a system than anything. Yeah. And you've shared that someone you work with, Robin O'Brien, says that we can't change a broken food system with a broken financial system. And I think that really eloquently- That's right. I love that. Yeah, sums up what you just said. And so this term racial capitalism, do you think capitalism itself necessarily is racialized because of the historical backdrop of everything? Absolutely. I mean, think about it. When you think about this country and you think about capitalism, you take out of the institution of slavery, what would capitalism be in in the United States? I have no idea what it would be, honestly, because it was premised upon stolen land as well as stolen people and free labor. And that labor, those millions of of enslaved Africans and the hard work for the many over 200 years here in this country allowed this country, the United States, to be the quote unquote economic superpower of the world. It all started then. It all was off the backs of, just think about it, labor. And if you look at any business right now, my own business, your business, labor is one of your most expensive uh, line items. Now, you put a zero on that line item and, uh, well, you pay for them, okay, you buy them. And by the time you amortize that over the life of an individual, you have hardly paid anything for labor. And, and yet you get you reap all the benefits of their work. And so capitalism was based on that in this country. And so racial capitalism is absolutely the correct way to describe capitalism in, in America. Right. And there's really no way to separate the two because they feed into each other and have been systematized, as you mentioned. And another big piece of the puzzle to seeing money's influence on the food system is philanthropy. And I think people are increasingly aware of, for example, Bill Gates buying up a lot of farmland in the U.S., while also having a keen interest on influencing what the future of food looks like with his foundation's work in agriculture. 
Whether you prefer speaking more specifically to Bill Gates and his foundation or philanthropy more broadly, how might they actually be a part of the problem, perhaps in upholding racial capitalism, and in the end still do more harm than good? And perhaps it's also worth exploring and questioning what doing good even means. Yeah, boy, that's a big question. (laughs) When I think of philanthropy, I would say basic traditional philanthropy, although it is changing. And I am seeing players in philanthropy right now that are turning it upside down and changing the way it has traditionally worked and how it has really been an extension of the plantation in many ways. And so there are beautiful players right now. I have to big up the Katali Foundation as one of them. I mean, there are so many um, that are doing such an incredible job of changing the dynamic. But the way it typically runs is that the money, that little 5% that is required for foundations to um, give of their capital. There's many layers of of the problem. This is one layer of the problem is that they may have that 5% that is going towards, you know, NGOs, nonprofits doing something good on the planet. But the other 95% of that is on the investment side of the of the equation for the foundation is doing everything to undermine everything that is that is supposed to be that the 5% is doing good is invested in in the world of uh, venture capital that tends to kill businesses that is harming the planet, that is in fossil fuels, that is in incarceration of individuals, that's in all these horrible parts of the of the planet. And so in one sense, they've got this little 5% and that's what they tout, you know, look at how good I'm doing. And 95% of their, of their assets are going into things that are harmful. Um, just being in the market, being in the stock market alone, the stock market is is not a friendly place to be. It's friendly for money, but it's not towards the planet and the people. And so that said, there's that. And then there's, of course, the idea of, you know, honestly, the way I see it is that going back to the conversation I said earlier about capitalism being built on the backs of the people who were enslaved and the, and the indigenous people whose land was taken. I strongly feel that when I look at the wealth in this country, it for me, that belongs to the people who actually made it happen. So when some organization, foundation, or individual is given philanthropy to Black people, to me, it's like, well, that's just our, that's just our money in the first place. Mm. And this given with so many strings attached, the idea of philanthropy Taking the people, the people who are on the ground doing the good work, the nonprofits that's doing the wonderful work, whatever they may be doing, and then the person with the money is comes in to say, "Okay, I, I'll give you a piece of this pie, and you've got to prove to me that you know what you're doing, that you are actually, you know, I want to see the reports, I want to, I want all of these different deliverables that then take the people away from the work they're doing, as if those with the money." have the answers and those on the ground doing the good work are being questioned about how they do that work and whether it's legitimate or not. And, and that's their money in the first place. So it's kind of an interesting phenomenon when I think about philanthropy and how it feels like, again, uh, extension of the plantation mentality of who of uh, so power differential is still is about the power of the person with the money dangling it in front of you and having you jump through the hoops in order to get it and 
as if they are the ones who know. Now that is, that's the, the way it is set up. That is not, I am not characterizing all the players in philanthropy at all. Okay. That's the system. Again, that is the system of philanthropy. The players can be different and are different. And I found a lot of them being different right now. They are seeing that they are recognizing the inherent inequality, the inherent power differential that exists and are addressing it in very creative, wonderful ways. And so I'm actually hopeful about philanthropy right now. I am extremely hopeful, hopeful. Just the, the fact that even though the word reparations is now on the table, the fact that people are actually people with the resources and the wealth, a lot of them, not everybody, obviously, but a lot of them are waking up and saying, I want to do it differently. So that system is the system that I described, but the players have choice. Yeah. And I see a lot of wonderful choices being made now. Yeah. People are definitely attempting to push back and go against the current, which is always really inspiring to see. And I'm thinking back to the 5% that philanthropies are required to give per year and the 95% or the rest that they typically will invest with. And I guess this is sort of systematized because when they place that investment somewhere, they usually will choose to put that money in places that they feel are safe. And in this extractive system, that tends to be going to the hands of the you know big corporations, big money, mm-hmm. big agriculture, big oil, and right. so forth. So that's right. kind of like big a farm. systemic challenge. Like I don't know how we would be able to work past this where philanthropies are upholding the problems at the same time that they're funding a really small percentage to supporting the solutions. It's actually just going to take courageous people at the helm who are stewards, who are stewarding this money and who are courageous in their way of leadership and changing that dynamic and changing that dynamic. You know, nobody says that you can't do more than 5%, you know, it's that you have to do five, but you can make, you can flip that. And of course there's all the stakeholders that are a part of that money. And, you know, it's a big system. Don't get me wrong. It's a big system, but here's the deal. We made it up. This entire financial system is made up. The whole concept of money is made up. If we've made it up, we can remake it. We can always remake it. Nothing is monolithic and impenetrable. Everything changes. Everything is going to change. And either you are part of the change or you're a part of the problem. And I think that in order for it to change, it's going to take change makers who are, who are committed to being in the forefront and leading a way. Again, I go back to the Katali Foundation, who I think are an Olamina, Olamina fund, the fund that I am also a part of that's called Pot Liquor Capital. I mean, what, what people are doing right now, I look at liberated capital with that uh, Edgar Villanueva is doing. I mean, there's just so many wonderful players out there that are changing and being a pioneer. And pretty soon it's going to be a case where I hope that the weight of gravity goes goes towards those who are making the change, such that those who are following um, slowly behind and holding up the status quo will become irrelevant. I really appreciate the reality check that we made these systems and rules, and we can certainly remake them because 
they've only been like a few hundred years old anyway. So in the grand scheme of things, it's just like a drop in the bucket. It's a drop. Yeah. And in terms of agriculture, there's a lot of hype around regenerative agriculture right now, which in large part focuses on healing and regenerating the soil in order to help address the climate crisis. But what I've noticed is that much of the philanthropic work supporting regenerative agriculture is providing help for existing farm owners to transform their farms towards regenerative. So at a broader level, land ownership and access isn't really being addressed. And because you've connected the dots before between the soil and Black people who have both suffered at the hands of this extractive system, I wonder what concerns you might have about the way that regenerative agriculture is currently being funded or framed as the solution to our ecological breakdown. Yeah, good question. So at the core of regenerative agriculture and its quote-unquote new meme in the in the ecosystem, this regenerative agriculture, is that really it is Black and Indigenous ways of, of knowing that have gotten a new term and being coined as regenerative agriculture, that it really is not new, and that it is actually going back to what Black and Indigenous people have been doing for millennia. So there's that. And what has happened is like, I think about, what is it called? Kiss the Ground, the film Mm -hmm. Kiss the Ground that came out that really all white, all white. And, you know, some very dear buddies of mine were a part of it. They really brought forward the importance of regenerative agriculture. And, And it seemed as if it was a white man's invention that is going to save the planet. Regeneration is... It is about the soil, it is about the planet, and it's about the people. It's very much about how we treat people is how we treat the planet. There is not a line between us and the earth. We are the earth. And how we treat each other is how we treat that river over there or that tree. And so one of the things that I think is grossly missing in many of these depictions of regeneration is the people aspect of it. And, and instead, because that is an area that people, white people particularly, are have a hard time bridging, going there, not feeling guilty about whatever, whatever the reasons are. So they stick with the ecological, um, environmental aspect of it, which is very important, but it can't exist in a vacuum without the people component and the equity of a life of people that we treat like we treat the planet in whole and healthy ways, in ways that are regenerative, where there is the notion that growth, that healthy growth is a part of the equation for all people, all people on the planet. I have to say that my friend Paul Hawken has just come out with a book called Regeneration. And I highly recommend it because I feel that what Paul has done with this book is he's really shown the full picture of what regeneration means. He has centered people in it. He has centered the voices of Black and Indigenous people, and he has really 
claimed, even the part on agriculture with George Washington Carver, he explains his role in regeneration, who was the person in America who actually taught America about soil, about a lot of the principles that regenerative agriculture embraces. That was from George Washington Carver. And he's and he claims it. And you rarely ever hear white people say that. So anyway, this book has just come out this past week, I think. And I recommend it because you really get a sense of what we have to do on this planet to reach a place of regeneration. The entire, every system needs to be regenerated. And it's all connected. It's all connected. And so it's hard for me to talk about just one part of it without pointing to the entire ecosystem of people and planet. Yeah, it does feel like some people in the regenerative space may only focus on the ecological aspect without the people aspect because to them it may feel less divisive and therefore less daunting. But for me, it kind of furthers this binary and separation of man and nature that I feel has caused a lot of harm. So it could still have a lot of side effects that ultimately aren't going to lead us to collective healing. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you know, this, this idea of, of separation is at the core of, I think of most of our issues as people and as a society and as a world, you know, we've separated ourselves from ourselves, first of all, And there's a lot of reasons. I mean, you know, we can go on and on about that. But the separation of ourselves from the planet and from the other species on the planet that that we share this planet with, you know, this this system of hierarchy of who's on top and who's got the goods and who doesn't, again, connects back to racial capitalism of of who are the, the groups of people. First of all, people are on top of the earth and the other species. And then within people, there's the the group, certain groups and who are on top. And and this just entire hierarchical way of stratifying and stratifying in a way that says, and these groups have access and these groups, they have barriers to to access. And so that is what has happened here on every level and the planet. And meanwhile, the soil is being so just destroyed. And that's the basis of all life is soil. I mean, that's the, the food that we eat, the, the, the nutrition, the, the nutrient-dense food comes from nutrient-dense soil, which goes into the gut of each and every one of us that gives us life. And when that soil is depleted and the plants are depleted, and, and so are we as human beings. And so it's all connected. Nobody's winning when we treat the planet the way that we do. And so it's, it's a cycle that is a vicious cycle that, that needs a, a real change. And again, I, I go back to the fact that I believe that we can change. We have to change. And I, we made it up. We can remake it. We need more and more people feeling empowered and understanding that they, as an individual, have a lot of agency to make change. And even though it seems like things are just the way they are, they're going to just be that way, that is not true. Everything changes. It is a principle of life. Everything changes. And this really calls for a broadening 
and expansion of the ways that we look at wealth. So this is something that I would love to talk about with you. I'm aware that, as you mentioned in the beginning, you've had the privilege of a lot of love capital in your family and in your community. And this may be the first time our listeners are getting to hear about this term of love capital. So could you elaborate more on what this means to you and how it's perhaps changed or challenged the ways that you look at the idea of privilege? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for asking that question. Love capital. I say that word because, you know, there's all kinds of capital, right? There's financial capital. We did not have as I did not have a lot of financial capital growing up, but our currency absolutely was was love. And that currency is way more powerful than any piece of paper that we agree on that has some kind of meaning to it. And so having had that, the love that I was that I was raised with, and being able to be infused with that—that's how I see the world. I know what's really important, and I'm grateful to my family and my mother who really showed us what is really important in life. And so, you know, that's where I come from for sure. And I think that I think I, I, I believe that when I see the world and and how we have taken that word out of everything that we do, unless it's something personal or some be- some being that we love, but that we have, you know, there's no love in business. There's no love in, in anything like that. And, and that to me is why we have the world that we have is because there is no love in business. You know, this is all, it's transactional. It's absolutely, it's purely transactional. It's not about relationship. Love brings about relationship and it centers relationship and relationship is who we really are, I believe. And so when we center relationship as opposed to transaction, that changes things. I mean, that changes things gravely. You get a transaction, you can do any kind of transaction if you can, you know, if you're blinded and don't see the people that you're working with or see or, or have any kind of investment, emotional, personal investment in in the people that you support. So it's a real important part, love is. And I think that, and it's, it's interesting because as a woman in business, um, I had a business in Oakland called Impact Hub Oakland, and people loved going into, it's a big, beautiful space. It was a space of 12,000 square foot space that we, the team, that I work with my partners, we made it really beautiful. And people walked in and would go, wow, what is it? Why do I always want to be here? And they felt cared for and they felt loved is what it boils down to, honestly. And it was what is what we're all really looking for. And so I think it, I think it just goes a long way. And it's us having, us having taken it, out and compartmentalized it to like Sunday, I guess, at church or whatever that might be, or or when I'm going to be a good person. And then there, it's like that 5% versus 95%, you know, <laughs> I can do 5% of, of this good stuff, but then 95%, I'm, I'm about me. And, and that's the difference is that this hyper-individualistic society that we live in, that is about me, 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 is a big problem when at the expense of the we. And when we broaden our definition of me, that is to me what what love is, is broadening 
my definition of me to incorporate a lot more than just me, myself, and I, or my just my family, too. Yeah, that resonates very deeply with me. Something I've noticed very broadly speaking is that as a community's supply and demand of needs become commercialized, as the roles within a community become professionalized, and as the creation of products and services become industrialized, at the surface, we might see that the community is growing financially richer, but it also feels like it's not necessarily an increase in overall wealth because through those processes, a lot of times the social, spiritual, and love capital seem to be just exchanged for the currency of financial capital. Like just to give an example, I'm thinking about how when my grandma like mends clothes for me or when my mom cooks for me or when a friend delivers soups and medicines to me when I'm sick, those are invaluable forms of mutual love and relationship building that just can't be dollarized. Right. That you know, strengthen my community and are able to enrich me in ways that monetary value can't really capture. But when all of those become services that I pay for, the financial capital becomes a more reductive substitute for the other forms of capital like spiritual, social, and love. And so they they tend to become more transactional. And of course, many people today are forced to partake in our economies in this transactional way because maybe we've lost our other forms of wealth and privilege, but it might be instructive in orienting us towards a more holistically enriching life and society. Yeah, you bring up some very good points. There's a lot in there to unpack. We have traded in that which is sacred for that which is transactional and that which buys things. We have traded in a lot of who we really are, what really makes us well, for what we can buy to make us well, so we think, and make us happy, so we think. We've traded in a lot of things in order to have what we consider to be the good life. And yet, like you said, when that bowl of soup shows up at your porch and when those kinds of acts of kindness happen, that's really, there's no greater moments than those. Those are, that's really what makes us human to human with each other. And, and so this society and the capitalism and the the, the, the racial capitalism and the, the greed that goes along with it is also, it is taking us away from, from being relational. And I love the, the things that, you, that you're saying there. I mean, and, and also the communities are not getting wealthier also in the way that things are because people's money is going out of the neighborhood. You know, that's why the local movement is what, you know, buy, if you're going to spend your money, spend it on a business that's right next door or right down the road and to your local entrepreneur, right? And 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 keep the money circulating within the community. Otherwise it goes right out of the community and the communities are depleted. And yet, you know, the big box stores and the big corporations continue to thrive off of our inability to see ourselves as local beings and as and we have we have lost our neighborhoods but i think that uh, there's something that happened with covid that may have tended to 
open up our eyes again a little bit more about being local and looking around because we had to slow down long enough to just stop and and absolutely kind of depend on each other a little more than we ever had to before. So I think that the one of the upsides of COVID, and I say that with all um, knowledge and reverence to those who have lost their lives and to this horrible pandemic, but I also see that there is an upside to it that if we can really look and see that slowing down and being a part of each other's lives and caring for each other is that's what wealth really is, you know? Yeah. And so I, I agree with everything that you're saying. I think you just said it beautifully. Thank you. That means a lot coming from you. Yeah. Sometimes in the face of crises, we're sort of called to remember what it is that matters most to us. And I think it's really worth tuning into those messages and learning from them to guide our path forward. And in regards to change for the future, you say that it goes deeper than the tactical ways of doing things. It's the mindset that created the problem that has to be changed, end quote. I think people, broadly speaking, often focus on the what or the how and not necessarily the worldviews, mindsets, and deeper spiritual states or a sense of being that underlie all of that, that then shape the what and the how. So how did you come to see that this crisis we're facing is actually much deeper than what may be visible to our naked eyes and what mindsets need to be shifted to then manifest in the more tangible and structural changes in our world? One of the things that we, it's what you value. Okay. We have to look at what do we value and look at our values. And one of the things that we value as a society, I think in a very toxic way is we value growth that has, that goes beyond the limits of what is really doable for, for the planet and for ourselves. And so if you can't grow and expand, then people aren't interested. It's like, that's, that is what we are taught to believe that how does this scale? How does it scale? How does it scale? And the little moments of, like you mentioned of, you know, someone showing up on your porch with your soup, that to me is the real deal right there. And so instead of scale, looking at things at scale, what if we looked at things as potent, the potency of a moment, the potency mm. of, of, of the depth that we go with each other? We're so caught up in the dominant narrative that all we have to do is stop and pause and breathe and, and have a little bit of a critical mind and critical thinking. And we can see that this problem is almost everything that we're taught, that we're taught that is of value is actually kind of, if you flip it on the other side, it's almost the reverse, you know, it's almost always the reverse that what we value is and what we undervalue are the things that, again, going back to what is sacred, each other, our relationships, you know, the woman down the street who, who's locked in, who, you know, go and getting her groceries. I mean, these are the kinds of things that make transformation. And underneath all of that, there's a, a woman by the name of uh, Donella Meadows who talked about the fact that in order to make transfer, transformation, the, the most potent way to make transformation is by changing the mindset that 
created the system that you want to change. Change the mindset, you change the system. We have to change the mindset, our worldview, that we are this hierarchical worldview, that we dominate the planet, that we dominate all species, that we dominate each other, different groups. And if we, that is our worldview. Our worldview is, is one of extraction. It is not one of regeneration. And until we understand what extraction and the harm that it has caused and what extraction actually looks like on the personal level, on the, on the, on the societal level, on, on the planetary level, we have a mentality and a worldview of taking and extracting. And when you diagnose that and you go, okay, what is the opposite of that? And the opposite of that is regeneration is to put life in rather than to take life out. And that's what our practices do. We take life, we suck life out of systems, out of the earth, out of, out of the ocean, out of all the things, out of each other, rather than put life into it. Because regeneration is just that. It is life, being life, and supporting life and in a, in a way that is healthy and whole. And so I think that we have to have, I mean, the world is at a very interesting precipice right now after the IPCC report of climate and what is happening. We have a few years to half our parts per million of carbon in the air um, by 2030. And then we've got to do another half after that by 2050. And so in order to do that, it is going to take a concerted effort of us looking at each other, working together and valuing life again and not money. Understanding that money has a place. It is only an agreement that we've made with each other. It inherently has no value. It inherently is it's just a, something, nothing really, but something that we have given value to. We could change the kind of value that we give to it in the gift economy, in the barter economy. There's so many things that are happening right now on the planet and and that are trying to find what does a newer capitalism look like? What does the next capitalism look like? What does the next economy rather look like? And we need to do that post haste as we start to value different things than what we value right now. And we can do it, but we got to get on it. And we have to really center ourselves in a place differently than when we have this entry. I mean, you know, I can try to sequester, I mean, uh, you know, gather up all the, all the goodies, all the money and stack it in a, in a bank. And, and as we go off the edge, what is that going to do? Okay. So we have to really, I think, look at our priorities, reprioritize, understand that if the earth is not here, we're not here. But I'm going to tell you something, what's going to happen if we don't make it, the earth's going to be fine because she will regenerate because that's the nature of regeneration. It is life. So I know that eventually she will be fine again. Whether humans are here to be a part of it is what the question is. I would hope so. I would like to think <laughs> that the children who are being born right now, the babies that my, my friend had a baby on Saturday, and I'm just praying that that child 
is going to have a world that is regenerative and that is loving to be raised in and to continue to steward. What is an impactful publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? <sighs> so many. Uh, how do I pick one? Right now, it's regeneration in the book. I'm right. in the thick of it right now. So yeah. I'd have to say that right now. And and then, yeah, the other the, uh, book that's been profound for me in my life is anything written by Toni Morrison, period, mm. full stop. What is a personal motto, mantra, or practice you engage in to stay grounded? Not me, not mine, not I. And what are some of your biggest sources of inspiration right now? The people that I work with. Mm. I have the most amazing individuals that I work with that just keep me inspired. They're so smart and they're so heart-centered. Well, we are coming to a close, but Green Dreamer, to learn more and stay updated on Conda's work at Jubilee Justice, you can head to jubileejustice.org and all of their social media links will be shared in our show notes at greendreamer.com. Conda, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. It's been an honor to be in conversation with you. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Oh, wow. I just want to say I'm not familiar with the podcast. I have to be honest, and I love the name. (laughs) And so I have a sense of it. And by the questions you ask me, you asked me, I have a sense of where you're headed. And so I think that the people who must listen to this podcast are already on a spectrum of of doing good in the world and, and seeing that it's all possible. I just want to say my last words are that we have made this stuff up. We can unmake it and remake it. This episode of Green Dreamer was brought to you by listeners like you. To reciprocate support for our community-powered show starting from just $2, you can head to greendreamer.com support. Without a media network behind us, we also rely entirely on word of mouth so that our extensive archive of conversations can reach and inspire more people. So if you get the chance to share your favorite episodes with loved ones or to write us a five-star review in the podcast app, this all helps so much and we are so grateful. The song featured in this episode is Little Girl by Lil Igley. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production manager is Tammy Gunn. And I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Take care and I will catch you soon in the next episode.